You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Hot Topics in Allergy, presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Your host is Dr. Katen Sheff, Medical Director of the Lafayette Allergy and Asthma Clinic in Lafayette, Indiana. How can physicians help asthma patients assess their disease? Once a patient has an asthma exacerbation, how should physicians manage the condition? Joining us to discuss preventing asthma exacerbations, the new NIH guidelines, is Dr. Carlos Camargo, Associate Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at Harvard Medical School and Emergency Physician at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, Dr. Camargo. Happy to be with you. Well, are the NIH asthma exacerbation guidelines new or an update to previous guidelines? Much of it is similar to the earlier guidelines, which came out in the last version. The second version was in 1997 with an update in 2002. And then these new guidelines came out in 2007. And as I said, a lot of it's the same. It's albuterol, systemic steroids, and an assessment, and and then a follow-up to see if they're getting better. But there are some new ideas that we incorporated in these recent guidelines. Well, how do these guidelines define asthma exacerbation? That's a surprisingly difficult question. We went with a definition of an acute or a subacute episode of progressive worsening of shortness of breath, coughing, wheezing, or chest tightness, or some combination of them. It has to be something worse than the day-to-day variation of asthma. And so there is, of course, a gray zone. And one group that I know struggles a lot with this is when you're taking care of little children. Sometimes it becomes hard to know before they really have the diagnosis. Is that an exacerbation or just sort of poorly controlled disease? But I think, again, it's one of those things that if you see enough asthma and see enough patients, you'll see asthma. There is a point where you know they're having something significantly worse than usual and even the variation. And at that point, you call it an exacerbation, and at that point, you start to treat it in a way that's different from simply taking control of poorly controlled asthma in the long term. Is a patient who goes to the emergency room, is that an exacerbation? For the most part, they are, and the vast majority of them are. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about a visit to the emergency department, for instance, by somebody who doesn't have their inhaler, their albuterol inhaler, and that's a way to get a prescription. But you have to remind you, you know, why do people want to have an inhaler? It's probably because they can't breathe well. And it might be chronic asthma, but more likely than not, it is an exacerbation. And the typical patient who goes to the emergency department for their asthma actually has a very serious exacerbation episode. Typically, and among adults, patients are around 40, 45% of predicted in terms of their FEV1 or peak flow. And that's a moderate to severe asthma exacerbation. So they're real. We treat them, and we treat them well in the sense that the vast majority of them go home. What's a good strategy or the best strategy for managing these asthma exacerbations before the patient reaches the emergency room? An important part of management of chronic asthma over a lifetime and with the care of a primary care provider or specialist with an asthma is to have an action plan. And so... Patient education, which includes this action plan, which would guide you on what to do when you started to have an exacerbation. What are typical triggers, things that get you into that state? And for many people, it's a common cold. That's probably the most common cause. But for others, it's going to be allergens and more at certain times of the year. And so knowing these things that cause the exacerbation and knowing what an exacerbation feels like and the sequence of events 
a patient can rely on the action plan to do different things. One of them might be to assess how bad their airway flow is, for instance, with a peak flow. You could also just rely on symptoms, and there's now good studies showing that people differ a little bit, but in general, symptoms and peak flows will give you roughly the same information. And that would then lead you to either take a medicine that had been prescribed to you already as part of your action plan or to seek care, for instance, in an emergency department. Call your doctor to find out what to do. I think that's the best message that I could give in terms of, as an outpatient, thinking about exacerbations, what's the most important thing to do? It's provide that education, which we take for granted. But for many people, they just don't know what to do and panic. And the worst thing they can do is ignore it. What are some of these signs and symptoms of worsening asthma that patients should really be aware of? I think if you're in good control and you start to feel increasing shortness of breath that is different from the ordinary and does not seem to be responding to an albuterol treatment or or two, that you should wonder why and start to think about whether or not this could be early signs of an exacerbation. That's usually going to be associated with some sort of a trigger. It's going to be because you have a cold. It's going to be because you went to visit somebody and there's smoke in the rooms, because you went to visit somebody and they had a cat and you're allergic to cats. But it's, again, putting this all together, realizing that your airways are tightening. And this can happen in a matter of you know minutes to hours. More often, though, it happens over a course of days. And so there's plenty of opportunity to recognize it and start to do something about it, to implement your action plan. But people often ignore it and just think, well, it'll go away. And that is unfortunate because it can get worse and worse. And for those who don't know what to do, this is, you know, rarely, but it definitely happens. People do die of asthma exacerbations, and many of them have had symptoms for literally days. What should a patient communicate to their physician, or what is the communication that should occur once these exacerbations start? If you have an action plan, you would know what to do, and what you would probably do for many adults would be to check a peak flow meter at reading. Now, you'd know what your typical peak flow meter reading was. You'd compare it to that, and you'd call the office and tell them, well, I'm, I usually am 600, and now I'm 350, or, or what have you. And here's how long it's been going on. And ideally, the provider would be able to see you. Or if not him or her, the nurse could see you perhaps. Or, But there would be an attempt to see you that same day through some flexible scheduling or something like that. That's not an option. You could go to the emergent care center or to an emergency department and get seen. Um, clearly, we don't want everybody going to the emergency department every time they have a cold or some you know, mild worsening. But it is there. And again, asthma can be life-threatening. So it's trying to balance this need to see people when they're having respiratory distress with not having to see everybody. And again, patients don't want to go to the emergency department either. Long waits, et cetera, and cost. So I would say follow the action plan, contact your provider, and if you can't reach anybody, then do go towards an urgent care center or emergency department for a definitive treatment and evaluation. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Hot Topics in Allergy from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Caton Sheff. In joining me to discuss Preventing Asthma Exacerbations, the new NIH guidelines, is Dr. Carlos Camargo, Associate Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at Harvard Medical School and Emergency Physician at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. 
Well, once an exacerbation starts, you've touched on it, but what is appropriate therapy? The best immediate medicine for an exacerbation would be a short-acting beta agonist like albuterol. And sometimes this is confusing for patients because they've been taught that using albuterol is bad. It's a failure, right? It's, you shouldn't need to use it. And the doctors often will tell the patients, don't use albuterol. And I think that's not quite the right message. A better message would be, if you can't breathe, use albuterol, but we're counting. So if you need that every day because you're short of breath or coughing or wheezing, we have a serious problem, and we need to change your environment. We need to change your medications. We need to change something about your life to get your asthma under control. If you're going along without any albuterol use and you start using more of it over a period of a day or two, we're counting, but do use it. And one of the saddest things that I've seen in my practice in emergency medicine is people coming in with a child who are very proud of the fact that they did not use the albuterol. It's just so wrong and so sad. And again, it was sort of a twisted message that got through that albuterol was bad, but it really is the first-line therapy for bronchodilation is going to be, for most patients, albuterol. And that's, again, the first step. Some people, as part of their action plan, who are really hooked in nicely with a primary care provider or specialist, might be able to use a burst of steroids that's already been prescribed, a specific dose, a specific duration, the patient's educated about the symptoms to look for, and can just use the albuterol and take the steroids and basically simulate an emergency department visit at home very early, again, in contact with the primary care provider and skip the whole emergency department visit. So I think that would be the other extreme. But again, it's something that many specialists with high-quality asthma care have worked out with their patients and happens all the time. Do you want to comment a little bit more about this oral steroid burst? Because in one of the last versions, it became as a rescue medicine, and I know it confused a lot of people. We were always taught in the past, for those of us who are maybe a little bit older, that steroids take days to start working. Why don't you comment on that, if you would, about the use of oral steroids and why is it a rescue medicine? It's in both parts. It's both in the chronic and the acute, and that is actually confusing for many people. It's in the chronic part because it is one of the final steps. I mean, really severe, persistent asthma that is refractory to all sorts of our newest medicines often will respond to systemic corticosteroids, but that's not something that people can take. I mean, your listeners are physicians and healthcare providers, and they know that long-term use of systemic corticosteroids has all kinds of problems. But it can be and has to be for some people at very low doses a chronic therapy. In the acute setting, after the albuterol and other bronchodilators like ipotropium and anticholinergic, systemic corticosteroids are critical. And what they do is they decrease the inflammation, which is underlying a lot of the exacerbation, and they kick in much sooner than what you were describing, probably in, in about three to four hours, and some people even sooner than that. As a general rule, you can count around three to six hours is when the steroids are really in there and doing good. That's when the cavalry arrives. So you have a window there where you're treating with bronchodilators of different types. You might be using adjunct treatments for a severe exacerbation, but hopefully you started the corticosteroids early so that you get faster to that point where they're decreasing inflammation and, and ultimately breaking the attack. You mentioned some of these adjunct treatments. What are they? When should they be considered? 
One of the big changes in the new guidelines is that we change the cut point for severe, and it's relevant to your question because the adjunct therapies are most helpful for severe exacerbations. In earlier guidelines, the cut points when you're caring for somebody as an outpatient for long-term chronic asthma care, you might have heard of 50% and 80%, and those are part of an action plan, the yellow zone, green zone, et cetera. And in the 1997 guidelines, there was a feeling, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could just make 50, 80 the cut points for everything? So it would not only be for the action plan for chronic asthma care, but it would also be used in the emergency department and other acute care settings to differentiate a severe attack versus a mild. The problem is that acute management and chronic management have some overlap, but they're also different. They're quite different animals in many ways. And in this new guideline, the acute management section is completely apart. It's its own chapter. And when we went to revisit all of these different treatment issues, we had to agree very quickly that the 50% cut point didn't make sense. It doesn't really help to have a cut point for severe where most of your patients in the emergency department are in the severe group, and yet they respond differently to therapies. You need something lower so that you can really start to split apart this large group of patients. And as it turns out, if you have a predicted peak flow or FEV1, less than 40% are predicted, that actually discriminates patients who are going to respond to adjunct treatments. And what I mean by that is are alternative ways of bronchodilating. For instance, an anticholinergic ipratropium, inhaled medication, is another way of bronchodilating, and it's most effective in people with severe exacerbations, less than 40% are predicted. Another adjunct treatment is magnesium, intravenous magnesium. Again, it's most effective in people with attacks that are in the 30s or even 20s. Another adjunct treatment, which is less studied, would be something like Heliox, which is an interesting mixture of helium and oxygen and can be used for severe exacerbations. Many of these treatments won't work at all. They're of no benefit in a mild exacerbation and are probably not so effective in a moderate. So the take-home message is once you've decided on the severity of the exacerbation, the treatments will follow because we do have evidence that some treatment works better in this severity than in that severity. I'd like to thank my guest from Harvard Medical School, Dr. Carlos Camargo. Dr. Camargo, thank you for being our guest this week on Hot Topics in Allergy. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD XM160. This show has been presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For more information on the ACAAI, please visit ACAAI.org. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening.